So I'm sitting here with Anne-Marie Farasin, um, now no longer in the beautiful hermitage out on the Canvas Moor estate in the Highlands, but in a, a, a very charming little bungalow in Brora. And uh, we're going to continue our conversations. I'm just going to start by asking her to tell us a little bit about her early life and how she was brought up, what kind of environment she lived in religiously. Was it a very secular environment? Were there any elements that predisposed you to religion? And how it was that you begin, you began to take up a religious life? As a child, uh, my father was very religious, but not my mother. My mother came from uh, what was in Belgium, a socialist uh, environment. But my father, from a very re religious uh, uh, environment, and uh, I believed in in God as a child. And uh, but my parents didn't get on very well, and there was always um, they didn't throw with things to each other, but there was always uh, terrible silences when they fell out with each other, mm. which for a child is worse than when they throw around mm. things. Mm. And I always wanted them to bring them together. So I think I was eight years old on a holiday in Italy when there's their troubles between them uh, were at their highest. I promised to a little statue of Jesus there that I would give up eating sweets. And then God had to put together my parents. So I started to do that and without telling my parents. And I, first I gave up the sweets and then I started really not to eat anymore. And I developed what was what they say now is an anorexia, mm -hmm. but in those days this word didn't exist, they didn't know what mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. And of course that didn't bring my parents together. So the radical little girl I was, because God didn't do what I wanted him to do, <laughs> I threw him out, <laughs> totally. Yeah, but then the anorexia, that was a, a terrible thing, mm -hmm. yeah. And they went to the doctor with me, but you couldn't tell to the doctor what was really wrong. And they gave me, uh, I think, uh, blood from horses and these kind of things to, to get me eat more. And then it went better when uh, I grew up and uh, in my teenage years. When I went to university and uh, I was studying well, but still uh, no God anymore. And from then on, I said to myself, I'm going to live out of myself, mm. out of the power in myself. Mm. And even not from any power from God or any strength from other people, only from out of myself. And that's, of course, the, the most dangerous thing because <laughs> that's very 
but not endless. And it became more and more uh, uh, a pit, a kind of. And, and I wanted still to give love to people, but I had no source. I wanted to be the source for myself. Mm -hmm. Then at university, I, I wanted to study uh, Latin and Greek, but there was no future in it, my parents said. So they thought, well, do pharmacy, and I thought, well, it's all right. But it wasn't a good choice. And uh, during my studies, I fell in love with um, a Muslim Turkish man. And I went off with him to Istanbul for eight months, I think. But he treated me, he was, I think, just a Muslim in uh, not prayerful at all, mm -hmm. just keeping some rules. Mm -hmm. But even he was drinking and, and uh, he treated women terribly and treated me also terribly. And we had sexual relationships. But then uh, we came back to Belgium together and he wanted me to have a child, but I could never conceive. And then he, he left, he, he abandoned me. And I felt so betrayed because mm. I had given up totally everything for him. Mm. But all that I kept in myself. Mm. And I still, people, I was a, a very loving girl and people all loved me very much. Nobody was aware how uh, alone I was and how desperate for inner food. So when I finished my studies at university, uh, I did some locums as pharmacist, and then I worked uh, at the University of Brussels for research. And this went on and on, this uh, being without a source, and of course, in the university there, we had all the, we had opium, we had all the uh, hush, everything to take. And I started to take uh, first cannabis and then opium things. And at the end, uh, I suicided myself. Mm. But God didn't, and I, 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 because of my studies, I knew how to do it. Mm. And uh, but God didn't want me to already end my life. And in the place where I did it, some workmen came and they found me on, on the ground and they could get me through. But then when I woke up, it was even worse. I didn't want to live at all anymore. And uh, I received food, I received, uh, I refused food, I refused to clothe myself, to speak everything. Then I was put in a psychiatric hospital 
And there I was put in an isolation room. I don't think that's uh, allowed now anymore. Mm. That's a hu very huge room with a, a bed in it, and you are tied on it. Your, your feet together, your arms next to you, and there is some bubbled glass in the ceiling, but you can't see, can see anything through it. Uh, everything is insulated, you don't hear any sound, so you don't see anything, you don't hear anything, and they feed you with a Baxter, and they only come to change you if you need, but they don't speak to you. And, uh, and I even at some point could take the Baxter out of my, out of me. And then something, so my no to life and to God, to God was just terrible, 100%. And then something happened, which I, well, I can perhaps explain it a bit, but that no changed totally in a yes. And when the nurse came in, I had eye contact again. And then they, you, they, they take you immediately out. And when I was out in the garden there, it was such a peace that I never had had, had before. Mm. And I saw the things, I saw the plants and I saw the people. It was seeing, hearing. But what happened, yeah. So then there was, uh, in, I was first in the closed part of the psychiatric hospital. And then I was in the open part, and you could go out with permission. And a little old lady wanted to go out, and nobody wanted to go with her. So I said, I'll go with you. And we passed the church, and she wanted to go in. And in that church, she did the Stations of the Cross. And there I saw uh, how Jesus was on the cross. I thought, oh, this is myself. I was mm -hmm. kind of on that bed too. Mm -hmm. And what happened afterwards, after that cross, that's the resurrection or something. Mm -hmm. And I thought again about my religious upbringing when I believed as a child in God. And I went to Mass in that it was a Catholic hospital. And I, I remember that the I didn't know anything anymore about the mass and kind of to that you had to turn your chairs and, and all these things and what and all strange words about grace and the lamp of God and uh, but then some words of the priest struck me and I prayed them with them and it's Lord I am not worthy to receive you. But only say the word, and I will be healed. Mm. And there, I'm not worthy to receive you. There, I opened my heart again for God. Mm. That was the beginning of an enormous recovery. Mm. And I started to go to Mass, and I thought, oh, there's, there's something I want to live for. There's something that's... After all this total no. And there was an advertisement in the hospital for kind of young people to go on, 
on a holiday in the countryside. And I asked the doctor, shall I go there when I go out of this place? He said, yes, that will do you good. So I went there and I, I hadn't realized it, but it was a vocation retreat mm -hmm. from the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And I had still the bandages around, around my, around my uh, legs from suiciding myself. And, and when I told my story, the, the people who were, who were leading the retreat they were really crying. They, they thought they were, so, they were seeing Lazarus. Mm -hmm. and, and there they give uh, uh, testimonies from were given from various religious um, congregations. Also, a couple came, and uh, some people who lived alone. Kind of all the kind of uh, Christian lives you could live, especially the religious one. Mm -hmm. And one struck me very much, and that was the one that the sisters of De Foucault gave. De Foucault was a, a hermit, a, a French hermit, who lived uh, in it's Morocco, more in Tunisia. Because they were so simple, and they, it was their simplicity and their joy that attracted me. And also because they lived, and they wanted to live really amongst the poor and like the poor. Mm -hmm. And that's what I always had wanted and I felt attracted to, to be like the poor and to live uh, amongst them. And so after that, I went to live in Louvain and uh, I got spiritual direction from, from a priest and that went well in the beginning, but then he uh, became very ill and I went over to another one and the other one, uh, he didn't lead me very well. When I was with him, he never said anything. And the worst thing for me was that he, uh, he I felt that he stared at me uh, in not a good way. Mm -hmm. I started, when I met him, to cover myself more, I thought. And after some time, he in, he, he in the beginning it was always uh, Miss Anne-Marie and then it was Anne-Marie and then he said, he embraced me and then next time he kissed me and a bit later he took me to his room. And I had thought myself, now I want to really follow Jesus and to obey God. I have been always against God, my no against God. No, I want to say a real yes and I obey God and so I have to obey the spiritual. Yeah. So obey the spiritual leader. And yes, the, uh, the bad thing happened. Yeah, he, 
and after we had a, a relation, a sexual relationship, uh, I totally collapsed because mm. I felt I had betrayed this new way of life and now there was absolutely nothing anymore. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the hell I collapsed in was even worse than, than ever before. And I was put into, uh, it was so strange. My, my watch, is, uh, I must have been so in, uh, disorientated that my watch went started to go double speed and then no speed at all. And how it's it kind of as, as if I was influencing even the things around me. Really? Uh -huh. So I was put in a psychiatric hospital again. The same one? Another one. Oh. This was now in Louvain. Mm -hmm. But there, in those days, that's uh, more than 40 years ago, it's nearly 45 years ago. Abuse in general, it was not known. And sexual abuse by priests, that, 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 that didn't exist. So you, you, nobody could think this could exist. Mm. So you, you didn't speak about it. Mm. And you pushed always these wounds deeper and mm. deeper. And I was always praying to to Jesus, uh, and I felt the, the, the anger or, uh, about what he did, this priest. And I asked and asked Jesus, help me to forgive, help me to forgive. But talking about, uh, to, uh, to nobody about it, absolutely nobody. Surely not good. And it came out that um, I started to go without I wanted it. And it was really driven by an evil spirit. At these moments, I, I couldn't stop myself. I would go to priests somewhere and start to take my clothes off when I was with them. I would ask, can I speak to you? And start to take. And then, of course, they were unsettled. You know? And I, start, after, I started to realize this is like a sort of a revenge, but I can't do anything about it. You know? This went on and on until I could uh, uh, get the control of, uh, of, about this. And I went into, into spiritual direction to another priest to whom I could tell a bit. And, he, and I still wanted to follow this contemplative life, uh, Sisters of Difficult. But he thought, and, and I went even to these sisters to ask if I could be allowed. Yeah? And they said, no, 
we have heard your story and we don't accept uh, people who have gone through these things because it gives too much problems when they are out like in Morocco or, uh, and seen afterwards they were right. It was, it was terrible for me. I thought, what's now my future? Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, I was living in Louvain in a, a community house with all student, university students there who had finished their studies, studies. And they were a great help. And I'm still in touch with some of them. And I, I love the community life too. It's not that, that I, I'm not good at it. But this priest um, channeled me to sisters, Dominican sisters, contemplative ones, sisters of Bethany, and they have their main house in Paris. So I was accepted there, and their um, spirituality was that sisters, who, uh, a woman who come out of a kind of a normal life, and women who come out of a prison or um, uh, or abusive lives, when they are touched by Jesus and loved by him, they can live together as sisters and the past is forgotten. Mm. And they can all together adore him. So I started there, and then I thought, oh yes, I want this. But after a while, I didn't feel happy and anymore. And this, that went more wrong and more wrong. And my uh, sister in charge of, of of us. At some moment I said I, uh, to God, I can't live here anymore. That's not, no, that's not good. And I had wanted that life so much. And I said to him, to God, no, here I am. And uh, you tell me now what my life for the future, and I will do anything you want me to, to be. And then uh, I had a, a Trinity experience, a kind of, yeah. And I felt called to live as a contemplative, but totally alone. And to give my life for all the people in their loneliness, just as Jesus gave himself on, on the cross at the end, in total abandonment, but in total trust to his Father. And I told that to the sister there, and she said, no, you, your life is not here. You have a, a, a call for a hermit life. And I said, a hermit life? What's that? I didn't, know. I didn't know this still existed or what it was. So I had to go back to Belgium 
I went to my old spiritual father and I told him, and he said, the hermit life, is this still existing? <laughs> and he, he started to look it up and he found a hermit in the Ardennes in Belgium and he was um, a Benedictine father who had been the abbot of Clairvaux, but Clairvaux in Luxembourg. And when he was 50 years old, he, he had felt a call to live as a hermit. And with the permission of Rome, he gave up being a, an abbot and he went to live in different places, a, a lot in America, in Canada, I think, as a hermit. And after 20 years, he went back to the Ardennes and lived as a hermit there. And so we both went to see him and I told him what I felt God was uh, asking me. And he said, yes, you seem to have, uh, uh, yes, a hermit vocation. That was after speaking a lot with him. But then the problem was, where was, was I going? How was I going to do that? And again, I asked God, uh, where, sh where shall I go? And how? And there, uh, to go to a desert, I don't stand the heat at all. I have always been, even as a child, better in the cold, mm -hmm. much better. So I thought about a desert in the north and I had been as a student uh, to Scotland and I knew how it looked like and how deserted places were there. And I said to this Benedictine father, I feel called to go to Scotland and I even pointed some place Croyk on the, on the map and, with, and he said, that's it, if you feel called to go. So everybody thought, this is really mad. You don't know anybody there. You don't know this, this country. How, how are you going to do it? And I left with uh, just a suitcase and I went up to, to the Highlands, to Scotland. And I must say, in the, when I left, I was full of this zeal for God to pray for people, to give my life in union with Jesus. And totally trusting, I knew God would, would provide everything. And that was people say, that is, that is stupid. But there was this total trust in God's providence. But the, the, the more I arrived in Scotland, that kind of trust was coming down. <laughs> but I started to live in uh, the Highlands in, in a little village, that's uh, Bonner Bridge. And I lived there uh, one year. What year was that? That's 80, 82, 82. something, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I knew it's not really in the village I want to live. I want to live out in the countryside. So I was used to walk uh, it's 10 miles 
over a single track road to the coast at the other side. And I had seen a cottage empty there. And, uh, and I was able to rent that one. And it was unbelievable that there was everything in it. There was a bed, there was, there was brushes, there was, <laughs> there was cutlery. Everything was there for me. And there was just uh, one room I could use uh, as my real living room, the sleeping room. And uh, there is, uh, I remember that first uh, winter, I moved there in, in the month of May. Then that first winter, I was totally closed off from people. There was this being in the solitude. I couldn't be nearer to all the people in the world, but the, the solitude in the, in the heart of the Trinity. And I had there, that I call it my Trinity experience, where for a week or more, I don't know how long, I really saw into the Trinity and Yes, it's very difficult to describe this. Mm -hmm. I was, I think, so united with God's will that I never had to think about anything or to decide about anything. It was so strange. I could I immediately did things about thinking, about deciding. And even all practical things, and I'm not a very practical person. There was no time if you are in that place, there is no time anymore. And then it was really living in God, not anymore before God. It's like taken up in a total other dimension, something I never knew it was existing before. That's still how my kind of between brackets, my main prayer is what my prayer is. So um, before we go on to how you ended up at Canvas Mall, uh, let's bring this part of the discussion to an end by asking you uh, if you can share with us something of the nature of this prayer that you were taught through the Trinity, through this experience of the inner mystery of the Trinity. How did it translate into a permanent prayer life for you? It's also that uh, what I see going on in the Trinity I can see it also going on in, in everything around and in everybody. But that's a kind of only when I am in my purest moments. And I'm not always in the purest moments. Yeah. And that has been the, the great struggle to keep up that 
that purity and to go deeper and deeper. So in terms of your daily prayers now, um, what form of prayer would you say is the one that is the fruit of this experience of the Trinity? It's when I go to sit on my map, and kind of, I know, uh, always constantly, again, you have to give up any, well, anything uh, of pleasure you would want to have from material things. And you have to give up also your wanting to control things around you. That means even a lot if we pray for older people, we somehow want to have control mm. over what. So it's especially these two things you have to, mm. to do first. And from there, I, I kind of, <laughs> I'm taken up. I, I never say I, I go into it. I always feel I'm taken up by God. Mm. It's not me who is doing it. Mm. Now, you remind me of something that Herr Meister Eckhart said about personal prayer. You know, he was preaching to nuns, um, monks, and he said that if I pray for Friedrich or Heinrich or this person or that person, I am praying for the denial of good. Yeah. <laughs> he was that radical. Yes. I am praying for the denial of good because if I pray for this or that individual, I am excluding all of the other elements of creation, yeah. all other human beings, all other animals, yeah. all other plants, everything in creation. Yeah. I'm excluding it all by focusing on this person or that person. Yeah. Whereas if I pray only to God, for God, in God, yeah. I'm praying for pure goodness. Yeah. But any particularity yeah. is, an, a, is a relativity which excludes the absolute. And that which excludes the absolute is evil. Yeah. <laughs> so by this roundabout way, he said, give up your yeah. personal prayer, give up even your... Uh, image of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And he says, the best state for you is to be empty of all images, all thoughts, all prayers, mm -hmm. and to be in the state of virginity, yeah. as the Blessed Virgin was, and then you will receive the word. Mm -hmm. And I assure you that no state is as good for you as this state where you have absolutely no thought, no concept, yeah. no desire, no prayer, no image, even of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You have to eliminate every single thing. Yeah. That's how radically he put it. Yeah. You can see why he was criticized so much for that. But when you said that the two things you have to get rid of, yeah. on the one hand, no desire for happiness from material things, yeah. 
or happiness in, in, in the whole, even. In what? Or even not, not, no desire for happiness no in the whole. No happiness it's at all. Every desire, yeah. Every desire, yeah. not just for material things. No, just, uh, yeah. No desire for happiness. Yeah. And on the other hand, yeah. no particular prayer for yeah. this or for that yes. person. It's also because otherwise you control. Yeah. And that was what I was doing as a child. Mm. I wanted mm. to, uh, that God would do what I was. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then once you have done this, yeah. you eliminate the desire for happiness. Yeah and you eliminate the need to pray for this or yeah, that person, yeah. then you find yourself in a state of receptivity yeah. to being taken up, up yeah. into the inner yeah. life of the Trinity. Yeah. And of course about that you can't say very much because it's indescribable. Yes, yeah. I'm sure yeah. it's ineffable. It, yes, but the only, yeah, I want to say two things. Uh, that also Eckhart says about Jesus, mm. to let go of Jesus. Mm. And that's what I am also criticized in by Catholics, that I'm not sitting before the Blessed Sacrament, mm. and that that is my, that should be my really contemplative prayer. And that's a bit difficulty for me to be accepted. Mm. Mm. And another thing, it's a, Undescribable what you see, and the only thing you could say it, it, it's the, the beauty, mm. what we are speaking about. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned so earlier. when you done you see beauty. It, it's even my relation with God is kind of in a way gone because you only see beauty. Yeah. Mm. Mm. It's not an exchange of I love you and you love me anymore, you know. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's in this beauty that you're taken up and you, you are sharing in it totally. You know? yeah. yeah, again, you remind me of what Eckhart says, that I pray to God to free me from God. Yes, yes, he goes. To be free from this dualistic relationship yeah. where there is what you said earlier an exchange yeah. i love you you love me yeah. i love god god loves yeah. me yeah. all of that has to go yeah. if pure oneness yeah. of beauty as you say and yeah. um, i can't remember if eckhart put so much emphasis on beauty no. this yeah. is more about oneness yeah. total oneness no yeah. duality yeah. no time no space no yeah. and experience. total peace Total, total peace. peace, because there's no, ex nothing moves anymore. Yeah. And it, it moves absolutely, yes, yeah. and it doesn't move with yeah. the things. <laughs> yeah. Pure actuality, yeah. always. Action, you, yeah. it's pure action, and yeah. yeah. God's pure act. Yeah. Eckhart also says that God's purest act is to speak his word, and that word, when it's spoken in the soul, when the word is born, in your heart, then that word is absolute power and being, or sorry, absolute power and consciousness and uh, happiness. Yeah. And those three elements, which yeah. are found in Sufism and in Hinduism, I, I wrote about in my thesis, Sat Chit Ananda, the Hindus call it being 
consciousness and bliss. Yeah. And in Arabic, the, one of the great Sufis said, Wujud, Wujdan, Wajd. Wujud, Wujdan, Al-Haq, Fi, Wajd, Fi, Wajd. Um, that there's being, there's the finding of the real, and there is bliss as a consequence. But all these three elements are one. Mm. It's not that they're distinct. Mm. One. So and that you know, also that also goes over into my body. Mm. Yeah. How is that? Uh, you speak about the power. You speak about Eckhart, who says the power. Mm. But his power, I feel it kind of, I feel it going into my, my, your body. Really? Your body also uh, shares in this. It's not you know, what would it be, your intellect or your heart. It's your whole being. Mm. And I, I can feel this, this life, life, it's really life in my body. Mm. Yeah. Is it like what the Greek Orthodox, the Palamite theology, what they call the energies of God? Is it something like that? Yeah, yes, perhaps. They make the distinction between the essence of God yeah. and his energies. Yeah. And these energies are all of his infinite qualities that, yeah. as it were, energetically come from his essence into the creation, and they are deifying energies. Yeah. They transform you, both yeah. body and soul, into mm. divinity, as it were, theosis, deificatio. Is it something like that that you're, or is that a bit too <laughs> abstract? Yeah. That, I always still wonder if there is this difference really between essence and energy. So uh -huh. I would put a question there. Right. That at the very end there will be no, yeah. Right. When all, everything, uh, God will be everything in all. There will be no differences mm. anymore. Mm. Yeah. Isn't that what the Greeks refer to as the apokatastasis, when the whole of creation returns to God, yeah. and there is no heaven, no hell, no world, no yeah. other. Yes. It's just the pure oneness of, of yeah. God. Yeah. Um, and I, would, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but something like, that the creation is the emanation of the energies from the essence. Yeah. And those energies both penetrate yeah. and create deify, yeah. the rest of the world, and then they deify, deify yeah, yeah. within the world those yeah. souls that are receptive to the yeah. deifying energies. Yeah. And that at the very end of that process, yeah. The apocatastasis, when heaven and hell alike no longer exist, it's a pure oneness yeah. of God, the return of all things to Him. Yes, that's how I do believe. But when you talk about this experience you have in your body, mm -hmm. do you have a particular posture? Are you sitting in a particular way, standing, kneeling? How do you pray? Uh, I was sure. But you won't have to explain. Well, I'll have to describe then yeah. what you're doing. It's, it's always this one. Uh, uh, so you sit on your heels, yeah. your knees bent in front of you, and your hands are yeah, your back straight, yeah. 
Mm. And you can you sit like that for how long? I used to more than an hour, but now a, a little bit less. Because of your knees. knees yeah. Yeah. But it's so important. I find this posture is, is receiving God. Yeah. It will always be the first thing. Yeah. Receiving and giving back. You can kind of feel this, uh, yeah. this life. Yeah. Mm. That's how we sit in the Muslim prayer. Yeah. Um, after we have done, we, we begin by standing. Mm-hmm. Then bowing at the waist, then standing again, then going down into prostration, forehead touching the ground. Then we sit back as you are on our heels. Then we prostrate again, and then we sit back on the heels. And that is one cycle of prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it finishes in this posture. Yeah. And many Sufis sit in this posture after the formal prayer, mm-hmm. and they stay and they carry on with their invocation of the name. So this is very. This is a, a common uh, posture with the Sufis, with, with the Muslims generally, but the Sufis in particular prolong this. You can sit like this for a very long time. But also, in following the Prophet's example, it's standing in prayer. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. pro- the Prophet is told in, the, in a very early revelation of the Quran that he should stand in prayer for all night, all night long, or half of the night, less than half, more than half. So for hours and hours, the Prophet was famous from the beginning of his mission to the end of his life, that he would always stand for hours and hours in prayer every night. So much so that one of his wives said to him, why are you praying for so long? Your feet have swollen up. And he said, am I not a grateful yeah. slave? It's the servant. Yeah. That's it. Am I not a grateful yeah. servant? But then in Catholicism, the, the standing position will, uh, will um, point to the resurrection. Right. Yes. The standing, the standing would be the resurrection. Yeah. And the sitting one? They, they don't kind of... Yeah. Like in the Mass, too, the standing position is the, the resurrection. Right. It's the people who have come out of the, the tomb who are standing. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think also when Jesus brought to life... that uh, You also you asked if I was not going to, to walk or out, kind of. But I feel when I'm praying like that and I can even... Well, now I can kind of, uh, I see God <laughs> let him come into me, you know. Like I see my, 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 my whole body after now would be the same as if I would have been walking or really? swimming or whatever. Really? Yeah. Physically revived. Physically, yeah, mm. revived. And, mm. Uh, mm. And sort of, 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 a, of a strength, you know, it mm. goes in it. Wonderful. And a relaxation, yeah. yeah. Well, when I, then, my body is like that, then, then I know I'm really all right, you know. And sometimes, oh, well, I, I'm just also human. I, uh, uh, I will not have quarrels with a bad day or someone who has hurt me, or you have to work to it. Then it takes time before I really come to this kind mm. of. Uh, mm. 
Right. Well, thank you very much, Anne-Marie, for sharing this with us. It's really fascinating and uplifting. God bless you.